Hey, I'm Bruce Kirkby, and this is Win the Day with James Whitaker. You're listening to Win the Day with James Whitaker. What we do in life echoes in eternity. Broadcasting from Los Angeles, California, this is the number one podcast to help you win the day every day. Here's your host, James Whitaker. Let's go! Welcome to Win the Day. The quote for today's episode comes from an unknown author and says, My biggest fear is that when I die, the person I am meets the person I could have become. Now, won't that quote make you think twice about living every minute to the fullest? And our guest for today is a truly extraordinary human who is definitely living to the fullest, and he's one of the world's leading wilderness experts. And if you've got kids of your own or an adventurous spirit, you're going to absolutely love this episode. Bruce Kirkby grew up in Toronto as an engineering physicist by trade, but going through the motions each day left him feeling like there was so much more to life than what he was experiencing. Despite almost failing English in high school, Bruce became a wilderness writer and adventure photographer, and today he's visited more than 80 countries and is renowned for connecting wild places with contemporary issues. Some of his most notable accomplishments, of which there are many, include the first modern crossing of Arabia's empty quarter by camel, a descent of Ethiopia's Blue Nile Gorge by raft, a sea kayak traverse of Borneo's northern coast, and a coast-to-coast Icelandic trek. Bruce is the author of three best-selling books, winner of multiple national magazine awards, and has been featured in the New York Times. His television show, Big Crazy Family Adventure, was released by the Travel Channel in 2015 and followed Bruce's journey with his wife and their two young children from their home in Canada to India with one condition. They weren't able to use an aeroplane the entire time. That adventure in particular has some truly incredible moments. In this interview, we're going to dive into Bruce's craziest experiences, of which there are many. We'll also look at the moment where he realized the traditional path wasn't for him, when he was taken hostage at gunpoint in Ethiopia, what it was like traveling with his young family to Mount Everest and the Great Wall of China, lessons from living in a Buddhist monastery in Tibet, how to escape the modern grind and start enjoying life, and what Bruce thinks the best way to parent is in 2020 and beyond. He's got an incredible energy, some amazing stories, and I know you're going to love this episode. Let's get into it. Well, Bruce Kirkby, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's great to see you. Oh, thanks for having me on, man. I've been looking forward to this. And big shout out to our good mutual friend, Wes Denning, for putting us Wes. in touch. I know we've got so many awesome topics to uh, to get through today, so I'm really excited for this. Very first question, what was an average day for Bruce Kirkby growing up? Wow. Oh, boy. Average day. Well, I grew up in the suburban wastelands of Toronto at the end of the subway line, so you know, I felt like I was kind of removed from, from the action. And I was a bit of a geek. And uh, so I was good at math and science. And, uh, you know, I was pretty active too, I guess. I loved to ride my bike and explore. And, and when I, you know, now I've spent this whole life doing kind of wilderness travel. But even at that age, I remember the joy in poking around construction sites once the workers had laughed that you could get in. Uh, but so, so, but I did not see myself as anything other than really a, a math and science nerd. And, and I mean, just to expand on that a little bit, in high school, I was, you know, I kind of failed English, kind of weird that I ended up writing books and being a columnist <laughs> for newspapers. But I... Um, I, I I thought I'd always go into math and science. And then by the time I got to university, it's like, I want to be rich. I want to be like Michael J. Fox and family ties, Michael P. Keaton. And I'm like, 
I'll get an MBA and, and I'll just, you know, study engineering first will be the, like the killer kind of duo. And so I, I studied engineering, engineering physics at university. And, and so that all continued and, and I graduated and was off to try and chase lots of money until I started guiding rafts and that yeah. changed everything. Yeah. I love it. So engineering physicist by trade, I don't even know what that is. So that says to me that you're, you know, you're a hell of a lot better than me on the, on the science side. When did you get the sense that there was much more to your life than that engineering career and that tr- traditional route that you were on? Uh, so is EngPhys really prepares you for a, I mean, it's beautiful because you learn why the sky is blue and how electricity works and all kind of questions that seem practical to me, but it only prepares you for academia and research. And I was like, that's, that I knew already that wasn't for me. So I got a job in a, a little consulting firm. I love the excitement. It was six people at the start and I left four months later, it was 45 people. So a lot of growth going on. It was in IT consulting. And I was in Ottawa, the capital of Canada. And as that was happening, my housemate had rented a cheap house in uh, Ottawa, was starting a bungee jumping company at Wilderness Tours, which is a rafting outfit on the river. And I just went to a meeting and the head of the, the rafting company said, why don't you guide rafts for us? And I did. And, and there was just such clarity for me that those two days of the weekend were so much more not just joyful, but meaningful that mattered to me than the five days of my week. Um, and despite the 99.8% cut in pay, I just I decided that's where, where I was going to go. Yeah, it's people are living to work, aren't they, at the moment with the five-day week, especially long hours, investment banking and, and things like that. It, we put a lot of demands uh, in Western culture, and, and that's not wrong. I'm still a full type A guy, and and you know that happened to be that my interests and my joys, you know, it, it evolved. And and people often ask what my perhaps strength was, or you know, whatever superpower led you to through this. And I, for whatever reason, I had a, a real comfortableness with uncertainty. And so when I quit engineering, I didn't need to know what was going to happen one year later, five years or 30. But what has happened is it, it led me to find the things that matter to me, which is kind of these remote landscapes and indigenous, threatened indigenous and traditional cultures around the world. And so I still brought that full intensity, that full type A work ethic into what I do. I just realized pretty quickly that, um, you know, working in, in a downtown setting wasn't going to fit for me. Yeah, and I'm so excited to talk more about that. And of course, once you have a family and things coming into the picture, it certainly shifts your mindset once again. Well, some of the adventures that you've been on are are absolutely incredible. You've been to more than 80 countries and we'll dive into a whole heap of those. Let's start with the Arabian Desert where you did the first modern crossing of Arabia's empty quarter by camel. For those who don't know much about that region, the climate, the geography and anything else, how brutal was that experience? <laughs> well, so many expeditions are are difficult but fun. The, the empty quarter was the quarter of the world the Bedouin thought was uninhabited. They thought that half the world was water, the oceans, when those living on Arabia, uh, and a quarter was inhabited by man. But there was this huge sand desert in the middle of the peninsula that, that was empty. And so only a few really three people had crossed it before us. And in modern times, no one. Wilfred Thesiger was the last uh, fellow in 38 who'd, who'd been through that region. And so we went back uh, in 99, bought 12 camels. And, and it got, I mean, it got hot. I remember our thermometer broke. It was 52.1. And so for a Canadian, I like, you know, have, we call it a toque. I like to have a hat on and, and my warm boots because you can escape the cold, but you cannot escape 
the heat, right? There's yeah. no way out. And uh, it, it was hot. And, and uh, none of it seemed like deprivation. I remember we, we really tried to go as traditionally as possible. I'd heard about other people had made attempts and they brought plastic water jugs and these just cracked and broke in the heat. So we had sheep skins. You basically take a sheep, cut the head off, empty it out and turn it inside out and, you know, hang it by the legs from the saddle, one on each side. And man, the water that came out was kind of green. And there's like, you know, these floating hairs and pieces of other stuff. But it didn't seem like, it, you know, you talked about it being brutal. It, that does sound brutal. But we, for me, the joys were learning about the Arabic culture, learning about the Bedouin, uh, and th- that feeling of working over a period of time towards it. When we saw those blue waters of the Arabian Gulf and rode into Abu Dhabi, oh, man, it just felt incredible. Yeah, it must have been an amazing feeling. What about the Blue Nile Gorge in Ethiopia and Sudan? I mean, two countries that are known recently for, unfortunately, some some violent conflicts. Um, tell us about about that experience. That was a good year, ninety nine, because right after crossing the, the Arabian Peninsula, we went. I went down the Blue Nile with the Nat Geo team, <laughs> and so the the Blue Nile, and just in a thumbnail, is the uh, long the the. Um, the bigger tributary of the Nile. The White Nile is the longer and it's famous for its origins in the mountains of Moon. Blue Nile supplies about 70% of the water to hit the Aswan Dam. And Ethiopia had been through a period since the early 70s called uh, the Reign of Terror, really, and no expeditions had been in there. Blatchford Snell in 68 had led an attempt uh, to go down part of the Blue Nile. Some of his One of his men was eaten by a crocodile. A lot of stuff went down. And so... This was the opening uh, of Ethiopia. It was still kind of controlled by what they call shifta, deputized outlaws and brigands uh, in those highlands. The Blue, the Blue Nile Gorge is huge. It is three times the size of the Grand Canyon. We, we traveled about 500 miles on that. Big, big volume rapids. Um, the whitewater wasn't crazy difficult, but what was difficult was at the bottom of every rapid were 20 to 30 crocodiles. And, and uh, I mean, you know, crocs... Uh, we look like the rafts look like bloated cow carcasses, and you're probably familiar with how aggressive, you know, crocodiles. Was, and I'll, as, as an Australian, I'm very familiar with, with <laughs> crocodiles. I, I, I didn't want to make an assumption, <laughs> but yeah, the salties in Australia, these are Nile crocodiles. Yeah, so we, so I remember on the first day, one of our our kind of interpreters and guides picked up all these little rocks, and I was like, "What are those?" He's like, "Oh, they're croc rocks." Then he put them beside himself on his seat. And when a crocodile th- showed up, he threw it at the croc and the croc was like, boom, disappeared. And I thought, wow, that's, that's amazing. <laughs> uh, then I realized it was relatively easy to scare these crocs away until we got to the big ones. And they always say that the, you can estimate the size of a crocodile. The, the distance between its eyes and inches is roughly equivalent to the length and feet. And so some of these early ones we were seeing were like 68 inches between the eyes because that's what you see coming at you. We had one come at us that had like 18 inches between those eyes. It was a monster. And we were hitting it with oars and paddles and the croc rocks did nothing. And, and it, that was probably the, the head was the size of like an F-150 engine block. Wow. That, was a bit, that was a big attack. Where um, are you even sleeping at that point? Because crocodiles can, you know, certainly in Australia, they, they can come a long time, you know, a long, uh, a long distance inland as well. I was sleeping beside the slowest runner on our team. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, we were we were on the banks, but uh, yeah, we definitely were aware at all times of what was going on. So, and did did you have any challenges from a, from a government perspective with just the military and and things like that at the time? We we had all types of stuff going. We got, uh, in fact, a friend of mine ran the river the next year, and he met a, a herdsman who said, "Oh, I shot it a, a couple rafts that came down the river last year, but I missed them." <laughs> Thank goodness. Thank um, God. Yeah, I know. We got taken <laughs> hostage at one point, and when I say hostage, I mean basically three kids. The oldest was 18. The other two were 13 with AK-47s, fingers on the triggers. Just, you know, they wanted to walk us in the jungle and take us to their leader. And that's a pretty intense uh, moment. And we're going through three layers of interpretation uh, from English to Amharic to there. I think they were speaking in Gums perhaps. And uh, eventually we, with some bribery, we we walked out of that. But People often talk about on these expeditions, this, you know, the scariest and the, the most uncertain times. And people with guns are, are scare me almost more than anything um, because mo- most other things have a certain level of predictability to them. You can understand a bear's behavior and a crocodile's mm. behavior and whatnot. So, yeah, yeah cr- it, that was an intense trip. And, and it, I'll just say one last thing. We met so, some tribes in the lowlands who had had zero contact uh, before and, and a lot of my writing and a lot of my thinking is about preserving the incredible knowledge that is, uh, you know, held within these vessels of of indigenous cultures. So, and so I I really had some mixed feelings about that, but man, the interactions, they would like ask how we got on our, our, these tight white shirts. And then they, we'd say that's our skin. And then they'd be like, you guys are disgusting. You're like (laughs) see-through. It's horrible. So really neat moments as we went down. Yeah, what did you use to to bribe them with? Did you have any any cash on you, or did they want any you know something that was more valuable than perhaps a piece of paper with a number on it? Do you ever go anywhere without some Ben Franklin's <laughs> in your wallet? It's the universal lubricant, the American hundred dollar bill. Yeah, so no, we had several of those, and I think it's recognized everywhere. You know, it's it's. I mean, we had lots of other things that we would trade and give away, and uh, but but no, I I don't think there's anywhere in the world that a hundred dollar US doesn't speak pretty loudly. Yeah, absolutely. I wanted to ask you about your experiences with Mount Everest as well, because it's such an iconic thing to people who are, even aren't involved directly in, in adventuring for, from a career perspective. You were also an Everest for Big Crazy Family Adventure, which we'll talk about later. But how were your experiences with Everest uh, before that? So I went there in 97, which was a year after the big uh, into thin air tragedy. And I went there with a Canadian team and my kind of role was to set up the communications to run radios on the mountain and send satellite stuff back to sponsors. And it was pretty shocking for me. I mean, the Himalaya are beautiful. I love that land uh, and landscape and and the Sherpa people in particular. Um, But it was the start of, boy, this is going to sound harsh for me to say, but the ego-driven side of Everest or a lot of, I mean, people were really going there in a very goal-orientated way um, without perhaps uh, the respect and understanding of the mountains or perhaps the mentorship they probably should have gone through. It was big money to and tick the box, wasn't it? To say that it they're, was, they're you know, yeah. I saw husbands and wives break up with each other over, you know, trying to get to the, this summit. And, and it's, I know, I understand the allure of the summit and, and I'm a driven guy, but, but I was, I have to admit overall, I was a little disillusioned and it really, uh, I had a chance to go back a few years later or go to this Arabian and ride these trip and ride the camels on the empty quarter. And I, I knew immediately which I was going to do, uh, largely because I was interested in being away from those crowds and, and that insanity. I mean, there were showers and base camp and huge satellite receivers and and, and it's only gotten worse. I was 97 mm. now. Now it's, uh, I mean, and it's okay. It's for some people, but it wasn't, wasn't for me. 
Yeah, it's a shame, isn't it, some of the crowds at these things. The first and only time I've ever been to Yosemite, it was the most spectacular place I think I've ever been to outside of maybe the Galapagos Islands. And there were just so many people around there in some of the main parts. And I just can't imagine what it would have been like hundreds of years ago before all these people at, at some of these places. Totally. And the funny thing in Yosemite uh, and the Galapagos is you can get away from it a little bit. Like, I mean, you know, Yosemite, if you're halfway up uh, – the, the chief or something, you're, you're on your own generally. Other routes can get a little bit busy, but uh, yeah, no, no, it's, it's a real tension between, uh, I really encourage, you know, a large part of my work is that I think we need to stay connected with wild places and I want to get people out to the Canadian parks. We talk about Banff and Glacier and all these places, but um, it, it can be hard. And, and I think particularly hard for me was, was, uh, the focus so intently on the summit at Everest that people lost sight of the beauty, they lost sight of the culture and the land and the history. And it was just all about getting, you know, they are going to walk all over each other just to get to the top of this pile of rocks. So Yeah, that I'll be happy if. It's like my Everest journey only would have been a success if I make it to the peak. Totally, totally. Yeah. And, and, and I think people thought it was going to change their life. And really, um, you know, we're going to get into talking about consistency and habits and and those are the things that change your life. Standing on top of a pile of rocks doesn't change anything. So, Absolutely. You know, I wanted to see so much more of Yosemite when we were there, but I was there to propose, uh, to, propose to my wife. So I had this ring that was burning a hole in my pocket that I was <laughs> desperate to get out of my pocket and onto her finger as soon as possible. So I proposed at the top of Nevada Falls, uh, at the top of the mist trail there. And then for the next hour, I led us in the wrong direction on the way home. And normally that would have been an extremely frustrating moment for her. But the fact that she had a little diamond on her on her finger <laughs> made it so much more manageable. What a great story. Yeah, I could imagine you weren't paying attention to everything around. Yeah, I could just, yeah, good for you. Congratulations, man. <laughs> Well, in, in 2015, your TV show, Big Crazy Family Adventure, was released by the Travel Channel and our good friend, Wes Danning. It followed the, uh, the Kirkby family as you traveled from Canada to India, more than 13,000 miles by every mode of transportation, with the exception of aeroplanes, which I think is really cool. So you're on cargo ships, donkeys, canoes, rickshaws, you name it. You traveled with your wife and two children who were seven and, and three at the time, I believe. How did you prepare for that journey? Boy, it, it, you know, that that journey, so it, it, that was a big trip. I mean, and it was really a prelude to all the time. We, we were going because we wanted to to uh, basically live in a Tibetan uh, Himalayan Buddhist monastery and, and get away from this crazy amount of distraction and busyness we were feeling in our lives. Uh, and our good buddy, Wes, I'd been talking to Wes over the years about TV shows and, and ideas for adventure. And uh, I think I called him and said, Wes, I, I'm just going to be able to loot for the next six months because I'm, I'm taking my kids to live in, in Ladakh. And there's this pause on the phone. He's like, hold on, mate. That that might be it. The ultimate family <laughs> relocation. <laughs> and the, a funny side story there is I kind of went back to Wes and said, you know, I'm thinking like I was thinking about you and McGregor and the long way around, like kind of just <laughs> one embedded photographer. Maybe we film it ourselves, just really up close and personal and gritty. And there's this another pause on the line. And Wes is like, mate, the Travel Channel has a different vision. We've got uh, 16 on the crew and budget for eight helicopters. I'm like... <laughs> I better go talk to my wife, man. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, we're, so, we're taking a break to get away from it all. And oh, by the way, <laughs> things have escalated quickly. It did escalate. But, you know, it was uh, there was a lot of great stuff about it. And people often cannot believe that it wasn't intrusive. Obviously, there's stressful times. You're wearing a mic, your camera's around you for, you know, 100 days almost. That said, my boys, it was like Teflon to my boys. You really, you know, just bounced off their backs. Hey, you know, they... 
and and we it really there was a lot of upsides. And one beautiful thing is we have a nine-hour home documentary about our trip that's produced by a crack team in, in Los Angeles. You know, the boys watch it all the time. I don't go back and watch myself <laughs> too much. Um, and, and then they left us. So we had this incredible experience in the monastery. But no, it, it was really neat. And we did a lot of things we wouldn't have done with them. But in terms of preparing, I think my point was you know, we'd taken the kids out a lot. We take, we have a thing similar to Yosemite in Canada, the Bugaboos, some granite spires. At three months of age, we'd had Bodhi in there. We'd climbed up to high camps with him. At in eight months, we'd had him down in Patagonia. We'd done a 70-day horse trip in Republic of Georgia with both boys. Taj was eight months old at the time. So our life uh, before boys with my wife and I had been around living outside. And with the boys, it was. One of the particular challenges was at West is like, we're not going to help you. Uh, so you got to do it all on your own. And so we had to pack into two duffel bags everything we would need for a 100-day journey that was across the North Pacific, over the Himalaya, down into the jungles and heat uh, of Nepal. And so there was a lot of uh, environments that we were going through. And so our, our plan was, I would carry those two duffels, one on my back, one in my arms. Christine would have the two boys in her hands and we could navigate anything, train stations, guest houses, busy roads in Beijing. And, and essentially, that's how it worked. And so we went light. We took, you know, you know, it's easy to think, oh, the kids need a lot of shirts. We'll wash them in the sink at night and dry them and they'll be ready for tomorrow. So we had maybe two or three shirts each uh, and some first aid and some good hiking boots. And that, that was about it. How do you prep for the, for the first aid side? I know anyone who's certainly from Australia, if they're going to a, a country where there are you know, things like malaria or anything else that's going to be around, you can go and see the travel doctor and essentially you get a fairly basic first aid kit. But when you've got two young kids in the, in the mix and, and different languages and, and uh, yeah. medical facilities that mightn't be as good as what you're used to, how did, how did you prepare from that perspective? You know, our assumption was we couldn't get medical help. So once we were at the monastery, we were at least two days drive away from a hospital in the best conditions um, and, and, or 14 days of walking if the road was closed. It, we were a long way. So I, luckily, I have friends who are doctors. Luckily, as a guide, you have you know lots of wilderness first aid training. We took pretty robust kits, both in terms of uh, medication. I took sutures. I'd had these sutures forever and I'd watched a Sherpa get 79 stitches in his face uh, at Everest when he fell off a bridge. And that had been two decades earlier. And one of the boy, one of the novice monks at the monastery had a rock hit him and opened up a gash and I put four stitches into his forehead. So we actually used those sutures uh, we took. Uh, and that was a pretty intense moment. I write about it in the book a bit. And he, uh, the bond between me and him, the trust that's required to put to, to sew someone's forehead together. It was, was unreal, really. It was it was a pretty special moment, and the boys still talk about Jigmet probably more than any other than novices. But we had everything. We had yeah, we had we in terms of I I was had the most buffed out first aid kits. Like because you're taking kids, right? You need to be ready for any type of you know. We had like three or four appypins in case we needed more. Yeah, good stuff. Well, what, what did that journey teach you about yourself and and about your family? Given that it's such a unique experience, obviously, you, you know. So we, I kind of hinted at at the 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 genesis of this was the idea of distraction, and I, I was a bit slow adopting the smartphones. I probably got my first iPhone a few months earlier, and I got like just like a tractor beam. I got sucked in right really quickly, just staring at streams of caca coming across Twitter and Facebook. And I had these two beautiful boys and I knew that I wanted to be paying attention to them. And I knew I started realizing I'm, I'm 
wasting my time on other stuff. I tried to change it. We're, we're a lot more fluent now with our understanding of distraction and how these devices work. Um, but both Christina and I had wanted to go to the Himalaya with her kids to live in a Buddhist monastery. And this just seemed like the time. So when you ask what it taught us, it reinforced that what I'd learned on so many other journeys with the kids that is time away from distractions with your family forms this incredible bond. And, and um, no matter what happens when you're home, that the, the uh, the gutters need the leaves pulled out of them. And that, you know, something's broken down. The car needs more gas. There's always something to do. And, but when it's just you, four of you in the same tent every night for six months, something really, really special happens. And I'd been exposed to that before. This was the longest big trip we'd done at that time. Um, and so there were, there was other things that I came home with in terms of the Buddhism and, and things I learned from those ancient cultures but it really reinforced to me, and, and what we've kept doing is going on big trips every summer, and it's almost like it, it just resets that cement or plaster that holds us together. You know, if, if it was getting a little wobbly, we just spent 21 days in canoes on the Columbia River, and man, that first night we all crawled into the tent, and we have our little positions. We lie in the kids on the outside, me here, dude, everything's got to be right because my kids are sticklers for routine. It just felt we're, we're back. Here we are. And by the time we got off the river, we, we were a well-oiled and well-connected family. I love that. When our daughter was born, the very first thing we wanted to do was make sure we got her used to travel, noise, and people. Because obviously me being from Australia, my wife being from California, we knew that there was going to be a lot of uh, travel and things like that in our, in our, in our horizon. So we'd taken her for a, a six-hour drive to Shaver Lake, I think, when she was two weeks old. She was on a plane to Hawaii when she was six weeks old. And then into Australia when she was, uh, I think, seven months old. So um, I think travel noise and people is just such a great way of, uh, yeah, of just understanding each other as a family, but also getting them used to. Getting them, yeah. Obviously, a routine is important for, for parenting, but also getting used to getting out of their comfort zone and, and also getting used to not having a routine, I think, can be powerful too. T- totally. And, you know, people, there's a lot I can say about kids and travel, but, but um, kids need love and their parents, right? And, and if you're providing those, you're, you're everything. And so I, I figured that out really quickly. The other amazing thing with children is uh, what a window into the cultural culture they are as you travel. You know, you go to Buenos Aires or, or Southeast Asia and you're a 20-year-old backpacker and the locals look at you like, don't you have to work? Like, what are you doing? But you show up with a baby and it's like the universe, everyone has that struggle, right? It's a universal part of our, all our journey in life. And they're like, you can't sit in the sun. You can't wait for the bus here. You need to come to my house. And wow, when we took Bodhi away for the first time and I'd been traveling nonstop for 20 years, it changed everything. And, and I would, and people will also say, what they're going to remember it. You know, he's only 18 months old, but everything we know about early childhood education is those first years, the bonds are, are the most critical. So I've often posed the question to people, what's more impactful taking your, your daughter or son as a 20 year old to, you know, to board a ferry and go across Lake Tanganyika in Africa or taking them on as an 18 month year old. Um, who's to say that the fact that they can't remember it doesn't have a bigger cascading effect on their life. So anyways, we, we've taken our children out right from the start. 
Well, the studies now that have come out that intergenerational trauma can actually be from, you know, not just your parents, but also your grandparents that you can feel. So I'm sure there's some element of that from the adventurous spirit that, of course, people who are who are experiencing these things when they're super young are going to have an element of that that, that stays with them uh, forever. Was, yeah. there an, was there an element of any of these journeys when you had your kids with you or even some of your adventures alone where you thought perhaps, we've bitten off, perhaps you've bitten off more than you could chew? <laughs> um, hi. Not, not, I can't, I can't really say yes with, with the kids. There's been a few, usually that, you know, people often say, you know, what, what are some crazy moments? I remember waking up to a gunfight once in tents. I was in Ethiopia. Some, some mule thieves had come and you, I remember the first thought I was like, if someone was going to shoot into the tent, you know, should I crawl up in the, should I be a ball in the center line, like a plank along the side? How am I going to miss these incoming bullets? You, you aren't thinking, feeling sorry for yourself or anything. I think the, the most out there I felt with the kids was on the container ship. So we went across the North Pacific on this massive cargo ship and they were just these soft velvety little boys. And this is an industrial setting, you know, with like wrenches the size of horses' legs hanging off the walls. And, and we hit a storm and the ship was like heaving side to side. And the captain came to our bedroom and said, just sleep across the bunks like perpendicular so you don't roll out in the middle of the night. And I'm like, oh God, what does he know that we don't? <laughs> and uh, see, we was beyond our control at that point, right? We were really in the safety of someone else's hands. So that, that was a bit intense. But no, I felt pretty good with the boys. At one time, Taj actually, had, my younger son, had a bit of a, um, what appeared to be an altitude reaction. And we were just starting to acclimatize him, but we followed all the, we talked to lots of pediatric uh, physicians and we took him down and kept measuring his blood oxygen saturation in his blood and brought him up a few days later. And he was totally fine. In fact, we got our boys almost to 17,600 feet, like that, you know, pushing 6,000 meters uh, on the passes as we went in and out of Zanskar. And they were just absolutely uh, unfazed. I love it. Yeah. As a dad, what's the biggest fear you have for your children as they get older? Oh, boy. Well, I mean, these days there's a lot of fears. Eh? The, light, the world seems pretty um, pr- pretty dynamic, I'd say, and it, it, not knowing what the future will look like. I, You know, I, I, I want my boys to have the freedom to do what interests them and the, the courage and the freedom um, to to pursue what matters to them in life. And I think that's a journey that we all go through. And I think there's a little bit in, and, and I don't want to, you know, paint with too broad a brush, but within Western society, we sometimes we may get deep into life and look back and think, why have we made the choices that we've made? Why have we done the things we've done? And so I don't want, uh, I don't want them to get to that place. I really, uh, you know, one thing I try to instill in them is just the precious nature of every day. We don't know what's coming. Of course, as a parent, you look at this beautiful child to love something, you have to risk loss. Like something could happen to your children. And what a horrible thing for parents to consider. That doesn't mean we don't have kids. And so I want them to be aware that, you know, every day is so precious. So my, my fear would be, uh, you know, not nothing catastrophic, just them not uh, taking, taking full advantage of this opportunity of being alive. Yeah, it's such a good point. One of my favorite quotes actually is when I die, I want my biggest fear is that the person I am meets the person I could have become. Oh, I think that's I a good one. Yeah. Often. Yeah. yeah. Good, well, of the, of the countries you've traveled to with a young family, what do you feel is the best environment to raising a family in, in 2020 and beyond? And of course the world has gone, you know, a little haywire in this year. So maybe things might've changed, but out of everywhere you've been to in, in your experiences, where, what environment or what country in particular do you think would be uh, good to raise a young family in 2020? You, you know, it's, it, 
I, I love that you asked that. And, and there's a bunch of things coming to mind, but um, other, so many other countries really worship the child. Like the, the, the child and the elders are, are God and King. And so when we took a Bodhi to Buenos Aires, like we had the very first day we're walking down the road and like construction workers were coming up to us and saying like, goo goo gaga, like pinching his cheeks saying cachete, which means the cheeks, you know, cause he had big, and, 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 you know, businessmen would stop on the road. We were going out for coffee. It was like 8 a.m. in the morning and they, they want to hold our child. Like, can you imagine walking around downtown LA or Vancouver, Toronto and businessmen or construction workers or high school students asking to hold your baby? No. And so, Again, does a child know that? I, I think they do because we brought Bodhi back and he'd be in a Starbucks and he'd start like trying to get people's attention, like making these little gurgling sounds and people would be like, oh my God, you know, when you get on a plane holding a baby, everyone's like, it looks like the devil's just got on the plane, right? They're just, <laughs> they're thinking, do not sit in my row or within one row on either side. And we thought the same thing too, right? Like you, you, you're tired, you just don't want that. Man, I would, got onto a plane down in El Calafate with Bodhi and there was this lady... She was an old kind of rancher from the Pampas. It might've been her first flight. She was sitting in the exit row 12. We were in row 56 on that plane. She saw me and my wife walk by. She stopped us. She could speak no English. So she had the kid beside her translate for us and say, you can't go to the back of the plane. You need this seat. Give me your ticket. I'm going to the back. And this was an 80-year-old lady. Again, so, so all of that to say the amazing thing in other countries and the thing that I'm trying to bring home um, it is that respect and love of the child, the respect and the love of the elder, that sense of community, because it truly takes a village to raise a child. So, I mean, obviously South America would be an incredible place to bring up your child, but I think anywhere where the child is respected and not seen as a burden. And I think that's one of our challenges uh, within a busy lifestyle is not to view our children as a burden, but as a gift. It, it, the more busy we are, the harder it is to, to see that gift they are, but they, they just flourish when they're in that environment. Yeah, it says a lot about the, the character of the human spirit, doesn't it, across the world, that we come from different cultures, we come from different backgrounds, we have different political leaders, we follow different sporting teams and have different interests, but at the end of the day, we're all, we're all human. And, you know, speaking about busy and, and the world that we're in at the moment, a question I wanted to ask you is that the traditional path for most people, they, they get to high school and their whole focus is to get good grades so they can get into the college program they want. And then once they're in college, their whole idea is to get good grades so they can get the job that they want. Then they finally get that job. They move to a big city. They pay thousands and thousands of dollars a month for a tiny apartment. Then they commute for an hour a day on a bus or a train or, or a car. And I feel like sitting in traffic brings out the worst of everyone. And people are increasingly glued to their, their phones. Um, have we lost the sense of what it means to be human? And what can we do to start getting away from that daily grind? Yeah, I, I, you, you make an excellent point. I remember being in a physics class in grade 11 and, and some kid said that some, somehow the teacher heard one of the students in the class say, oh, I can't go to the dance this Friday. I got too much homework. And the teacher stopped the whole class. He's like, everyone sit down. We're doing this experiment measuring gravity. He's like, forget that, sit down. He's like, I don't want you to make this mistake. He's like, you, he said, you're going to forsake your fun right now, forsake living the way you're talking about it, so you can get into a good university. Then you're going to say, I'll have fun later once I, I graduate and get a good job. And then you're going to say, I'm going to have fun later or live once I you know, get a promotion. And then once I retire, then you're going to retire and then you're going to die. And, and this man said this to me at like, oh, I was probably 16 or 17. And that had a very big uh, impact on, on how I 
led my my life. And and I think we have, and and I think we're going to see. I suspect we're going to see some form uh, of adaptation going on because it's almost reached a cracking point in the insanity of the news cycle right now in what's going on. And so quite a bit of what I, I wrote about um, in, in this new book that, that's coming out was this idea that development so often goes one way. You know, we, we go to a, an indi- indigenous culture, we bring healthcare and um, improved education and all types of technology that eases the rigors of life. But but it's always a one-way interaction. Nothing comes back. And so the Zanskaris, this place I was living, they had all types of, of skills and abilities. And I'll, I'll give an example of one in a second to help cement the community, to help bring people's attention to the moment. And I was like, we, we need to bring some of that back. So so one thing the Zanskaris had is this idea of the Paspun, which is a group of three or four families. And every family in every village in all of this valley that's deep in the Himalayas is a, it's a unique social construct, is a member of a past one. And so they, they share some religious artifacts. They help each other during times of planting and harvest. And they cradle each other through this journey of life, like at the times of birth, marriage, sickness, death. They, they are there for each other. And, and it's a word we have no equivalent for in English, and, and, but it was a very powerful concept to how that society operated. And, and as modernity comes into that valley, this will be eroded. And so when you talk about trying to find, I think, I think we'll probably get into some routines and ideas uh, of trying to find peace amongst the chaos, uh, but community is clearly a part of that. I mean, there's, there's self-care and consistency in our work and, and time and, and all that. Um, but I, I think we're going to find ourselves going a little bit back uh, in time in, in some of the ways we interact. And I, I guess the, the fundamental thing I'd say, James, is, is attention. Like this whole trip was about attention and this our attention is this gift. It's like this hose. It's always on, pouring out. We can pour it into anything. We can pour it into our kids, into our family. We can pour it into our phone. Uh, you know, we can pour it into traffic and, you know, frustrations, watching CNN or the news. And I, so I think a fundamental part is learning to manage our attention. And obviously you can do that through mindfulness and different things. And you simply do it through awareness of what matters to you and, and paying attention to it. So, yeah, it's a good segue into the next question that I was thinking about. Like, you know, you've spent a lot of time in Buddhist, Buddhist monasteries where they talk about one of the tenets of, of Buddhism being that all life is suffering. But then in books like Think and Grow Rich, they talk about the starting point of all achievement is desire. What do you do as part of your daily routine to balance happiness in the present while at the same time focusing on future accomplishments and your own growth? Boy, that is, <laughs> that, that's a tough one. And so I'm just going to like step back a bit, come and answer that. Part of what I've done for the last 20 years has been um, speaking to corporate audiences. So, and at first it was just telling stories. I, I go and talk about the going across the empty quarter. Uh, and, and, but slowly, you know, you have agents representing you and they're like, we need business lessons. And so I've tried to really think hard about things that adventures taught me that I bring home and apply to my own life. And I've talked about change. And a, a big thing I talk about is the, the importance of dealing with uncertainty. I mean, that, that's a huge gift if we can deal with that. And, and recently, grit and resilience have, have been quite large. And so what you're talking about is really one of these three core things that I talk about when I'm talking about finding resilience or grit within us uh, in the balance of the here and the future. You're going down this mountain ridge. You've got to look at your feet. You've got to look at the summit. How do you balance those two things? And so really, the way I boil that down is this idea of purpose. So I talk about purpose 
process and practice. And it's sorry to sound like I'm just laying out this little thing here, but it really reflects on what you said. To me, purpose is more than winning, right? Winning can winning's an outcome and purpose is a cause, not an effect. And so to me, purpose is like how we can make the world better. What, what are friends loving in us? Like, you know, I'm sure, you know, Wes doesn't love you because you win. Wes loves you because of the things that make, you know, James a cool person. And, and so th- therein lies the start of, of us finding purpose, that how we're going to leave the world a better place. And, and so that's the long-term view, the desire, uh, because I really think uh, it, it, you know, people talk about BHAGs and all these things, you know, these goals that they're setting for themselves, but really we need to find a thing. I give a tiny example here for, I guided RAF for 25 years. It's easy to think of yourself like Spicoli, uh, you know, just, just a feel good, happy day tripper. I, I was guiding the Arctic, which is severely threatened landscape. I was in love with that landscape. And on my first trip, a senior Alaskan guide with a big mustache, like a squirrel's tail said to me, you know what we're doing here? And I was like, no, I got no idea. You know, I was tired late night. He said, we're creating ambassadors for the wild. So that gave me a purpose to what I was doing. So that's the long-term view. And then at your feet is the process. Those are the daily habits. And the other little piece I have is practice, which is we need to get better every day, right? We need to not play to our strengths, but but we need to to kind of um, address our weaknesses. Well, for those who have spent too much time in the cities and maybe haven't got as much outdoor experience, certainly as you had, but they want to go and take a wilderness adventure so they can start to experience some of the benefits that you've spoken about during this interview, what's the best way that they can go about doing that? Oh, mate, there, there's all types of things that, that uh, and opportunities from day trips to longer ones. One of the things I found uh, I was early on was the longer the trip, uh, the, the kind of, I was going to say the more intense the experience, but the better the chance to actually disengage. And the way I learned that was guiding five day trips. I was doing a, a, a sea kayak run out of Vancouver where I take people for two days on the weekend, then the five day trip over and over and over. And on that five day trip, on Monday, they'd still be, everything would be new. They'd be getting used to the sea kayak. On Tuesday, it'd still, they'd still be a little uncomfortable. Wednesday, they were free. And then Thursday, they were thinking about the ferry ride home and Friday was a write-off. So of the five-day trip, they had one day, I realized, where they were totally free. And so my only, the only way, thing I would uh, urge people to do, time is so precious, I know, is if they can go a little longer, you know, wh- whether they're sea kayaking or climbing or whatever it is, even, even three or four days, just it, it really gives you a chance to enter a new environment. I encourage people to do things that make themselves uncomfortable, just, you know, from a just very philosophical point of view, I think so much growth comes from that. Uh, and, and guided experiences now are so well-regulated and so safe. No one should have any concern about, about t- taking on something. You're going and trying to paddleboard or sea kayaking or whatever. Mm, for sure. Well, your brand new book, Blue Sky Kingdom, it's getting massive praise all over the world. Tell us about the new book and, and who it's written for. So, well, it's written for anyone, really. It's, uh, yeah, it, it's uh, I, the, a, a little short, funny or sad backstory is a few, about 15 years ago, I had another book that got just devastatingly bad review. And uh, I'd had other books earlier that got good reviews. And that reviewer went back to say even those earlier ones sucked. And I was just like so brokenhearted. So I really took my time with this one. It took me six years to write it. Uh, and to see that some of this early praise come out has been uh really meaningful. I mean, I, I do read a lot of Himalayan literature. And so guys like Peter Matthias and whatnot have been massively uh, influential to me. Um, I, and I've tried to make it 
you know, it, it touches on the Himalaya, but it also touches on family life. My son is on the autism spectrum. It touches on that. It touches on Buddhism. Uh, I really tried to make it accessible to anyone because really it's, a, in a sense, a family drama, a family love story playing out in a, a remote landscape. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. Well, let's now move into the rocket round where we ask you 10 questions for, for quick answers. You ready for this one, Bruce? I am always ready. Yes, brother. <laughs> Question one, what quote inspires you the most? Boy, I, I always think of Michael Landon, you know, the star uh, of so many TV shows. He was dying cancer and he said, whatever you want to do, do it now. There are only so many tomorrows and, and I've lived my life that way. Great advice. Uh, number two, morning coffee or evening wine? Mate, I'm a parent, so undoubtedly both. There's no way I could do without either. <laughs> Me too. Me too. Uh, number three, what's one bit of advice you would give your 18-year-old self? You know, I'd urge myself to be, go, go a little easier on myself. Maybe be a little less judgmental because life is a nine-inning game. You should be thankful, I would tell myself, that you didn't peak in high school. There is a lot of stuff, uh, the best yet to come. You know, and I think I see so many young kids really hard on themselves now, really thinking, oh, you know, I'm not up to snuff or par. It, there's a lot that's going to happen yet and just have faith in that process. Yeah, so true. Number four, what book do you gift the most? Without question, the Lonely Planet Travel Guide. If I know someone's going somewhere, I get them the Lonely Planet for that country and I urge them to go to their most remote location they can find. <laughs> you know, it's funny, when I was in China, we were in these mountains in about the most rural part that you could get of China. We took like a bus and three different chairlifts and, and another bus, I think, to get there. And once we got there, at the very top of this mountain, there was a McDonald's. I couldn't believe it. It was one of the funny... I. I, I forget the name of the place, but it's, <laughs> it's hard to get remote, isn't it? But I think if you've got it the is. right guides and you, and you know where to go, then you can really uh, disconnect and then um, be better for it when you, when you get back. It's the challenge, man. It's the challenge. <laughs> Number five, was there a vulnerability you once hid within that became your superpower? You know, going back to growing up again, I wanted to be a tough guy. I wanted to be rough and rugged and all this stuff. And really, I was an empathetic guy. And I think empathy is the modern superpower. The more we can understand the point of view of others and understand their differences, it, it, you know, if you want to talk business, it's a huge asset in business, but it's a huge asset in life. And, and so that if, if I'd never consider myself having superpowers, but if there's one, it'd be empathy. Well, from your adventures, it sounds like you've got a bunch of superpowers, Bruce. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, mate. Well, uh, well, question six, what's one thing you've learned about failure? You know, it's part. Of, it's, it's obviously part of the process. It is going to happen, and, and every time it does, it, it's actually usually blessed me, and to me, I just see it as a fork in the road. It's either going to like make us bitter or it's going to make us better. It's either going to grind us down or we're going to grow. Uh, and if we sit around feeling bad about it, uh, that's, that's taking us in the wrong direction. It's just, it's really an opportunity to improve. Question seven, if you could sit on a park bench and have a conversation with someone alive or dead, who would it be? 100% still alive, Richard Attenborough of the BBC, man, because I would come for the accent and I would stay for his incredible experiences. Like I often think he is such a spokesman for the wild places and wildlife on our planet planet who's going to fill his those shoes you're unfillable yeah I, i'd love to sit down and chat yeah such that. an iconic voice yeah number eight what tool or resource best helps you run your life or your business 
So one thing that I've started using lately that's unreal, and I, I only learned about it a few weeks ago, is this uh, software called Ecamm. So I do all these presentations, and it's basically a streaming software. It allows me to bring people's comments onto the screen, take polls, uh, put a green screen up behind me, project my images and videos. Uh, and so basically, it's allowed me to continue being a corporate speaker from my little BC mountain town here. And uh, it, it, it's so simple and it's so unreal what you can do. Yeah, so good. Well, number nine, this is the question that I've actually really been wanting to ask you the whole time. <laughs> Share one thing on your bucket list if there's anything left. I'm sure there is. I, I, in the last five or 10 years, have got big time into paddleboarding, doing really difficult paddleboarding adventures. I would love to paddleboard along the coast of Antarctica. So good. You need a pretty thick wetsuit for that one, I'm sure. You would, mate. You would. <laughs> and final question, number 10, what's one thing you do to win the day? I wake up every morning. I have a big glass of water with a pinch of Himalayan sea salt, and then I get in my ice bath. And uh, that has changed everything for me. Yeah, you know, my wife and I about five months ago converted to cold showers and it's been, abs you know, for sustained energy levels alone, it's been the best change I think either of us have ever made and we haven't, we haven't gone back. But ice baths, I'm looking forward to taking that, uh, that, the, the plunge quite literally once we can get around to it. <laughs> it's a secret, mate. <laughs> <laughs> well, there are a bunch of ways to connect with Bruce Kirby and we'll link to all of these in the show notes. You can follow him on Instagram at Bruce Kirkby, visit his website, brucekirkby.com, and of course, grab a copy of his awesome brand new book, Blue Sky Kingdom, an epic family journey to the heart of the Himalaya. Again, all of that and more will be linked into the show notes. So Bruce, thanks so much for coming on the show. Oh, James, thank you. What a great chat we had. I enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Bruce Kirkby. What a powerful reminder into making the most of the time we have on this earth and to get out there and enjoy life. If you enjoyed this episode, go to Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star rating, or if you're watching this on YouTube, hit the like button. And if you wanna bring more light into the world, share this episode with as many people as you can, because these lessons from Bruce are more important than ever. I think we all need to connect more with nature and what it means to be human. Win the Day with James Whitaker is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, and wherever you listen to podcasts. That's all for this episode. Remember to get out there and win the day. Until next time, onwards and upwards, always. Always.